College Radio Day presents College Radio, its past, present, and future. Personal listening habits have changed. So it's forcing us to make some changes in our theory of how we operate. I think that the industry and those at the top didn't want to change their little model, which they were making all this money. The sale of our radio station, the sale of our frequency and of our SEC license, nobody had any idea it was coming. It was done in total secrecy. I think the students have to take the initiative and make sure that their college radio stations are staffed 24-7, 365. Make sure that you have a lot of allies in case something does go down. If it disappeared, the world would be a sad place, and that's all I can really say. Hi, my name is Len O'Kelly, advisor of The Whale, WCKS, at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. For many students involved with college radio, there is no doubt about its importance. This is where we start out, you know? From getting all this great experience working in college radio, it makes you want to work in real radio. Without it, you wouldn't have a place for local artists to perform. Certain people need to have a chance, a fighting chance, and college radio is that place for it. College radio does that. It helps take up the small guys that no one really wants to listen to or no one like even cares about at the time. It gives them that chance and that opportunity to take. There is no other medium like it's one of the most creative and free forms of media left in America. And if it goes, the First Amendment goes with it. Yet many people don't know that the story of college radio is a story that has taken place over the last century. About a hundred years ago, radio, as we know it, was in its infancy in North America. The early experiments by Marconi and Fessenden, fresh in the minds of college students and radio amateurs alike, were an inspiration to achieve. Man possessed the ability to communicate, without wires, over great distances. Radio was born, and with it, college radio was born. There is no single answer to the question, who had the first college radio station in the United States? Many experiments were being conducted, simultaneously, and with or without knowledge of similar scientific endeavors across the country. Edwin Armstrong, who later would develop FM radio, experimented with radio waves while a student at Columbia University. Earl Terry, a physics professor at the University of Wisconsin, worked with a student to build the university's first voice station, 9XM, in 1917. Even as other amateur stations were forced to cease experimentation during World War I, 9XM retained permission to refine its signal. Student radio at the New Mexico Agricultural College signed on with voice in 1920 after years of telegraph transmission, while Station 9YV at Kansas State evolved from a telegraphy-only station to voice transmission after the war. The same story holds true for schools such as the Alabama Polytechnic Institute, now Auburn University, the universities of Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, South Dakota, and Purdue University. All experiments with student participation becoming licensed by the FCC in the early 1920s. On top of all of these stations, WRUC at Union College in Schenectady, New York, claims to have been given the first license in October of 1920. While it's hard to say definitively who was first, it is clear that college broadcasting was evolving independently and quickly in the early days of radio. By the late 1930s, college radio stations faced competition from commercial network entities and saw the need to band together. Students at Brown University organized their experiments, known as gas pipe stations, into the Brown Network in 1939 and raised funds for operating costs. 
the Brown Network extended to Pembroke College, and intercollegiate broadcasting began. More stations wanted to be a part of it, and in 1940, the Intercollegiate Broadcasting System, IBS, was founded. By mid-1941, college radio, as an alternative to network programming, was being discussed in the pages of the Saturday Evening Post, of all places. The article had an immediate effect. It woke up the entrepreneurial spirit in students at schools across the country devoid of their own stations. Everyone wanted to get on the air. Few audio recordings of those early college radio stations exist. But here is audio of the launch of Wake Forest College radio station, WAKE-FM, in 1948. On behalf of Wake Forest College, I am glad to welcome to the campus and community radio station, WAKE. I do this because I am aware of the potential value of this most recent addition to our facilities for entertainment and educational purposes. The experimentation crossed over to the FM band with its advent. The FCC began granting 10-watt licenses for educational use, and among the first stations to go on the air was WOUB at Ohio University in 1949. Within a year, the broadcasting yearbook showed 56 stations and construction permits in the FM non-commercial band. And eight years later, the total number had risen to 150. In the 1960s and 1970s, the number of low-powered college, high school, and educational stations grew. In an attempt to stave off interference, the FCC did away with the 10-watt educational license. Many college stations found themselves having to acquire new transmitters or seek other available frequencies within the educational band. By the 1980s, commercial music radio had largely migrated to the FM band and was under the control of programming consultants. The individual tastes of listeners in various areas of the country had become homogenized into small, safe playlists. It was at this time that non-students began to seek out college radio for the uniqueness of its programming. College radio took chances and discovered new acts. Listeners were introduced to bands years before the mainstream discovered them. Bands like R.E.M. and U2 were mainstays of college radio. The 1990s saw the Telecommunications Act of 1996 passed by Congress. This relaxed ownership limits on radio stations, and large conglomerates grabbed as many on-air signals as they could afford to own. College radio stations dug in their heels, but in some cases, universities and community organizations were tempted by offers of cash in exchange for their frequencies. Corporate program directors now sent playlists to their stations and disc jockeys and music directors were wary of straying from these lists, lest they be out of a job. Satellites delivered morning shows across the country, and computers sent pre-recorded voice tracks to multiple stations at once. Creativity in radio was at an all-time low, except in that section of the band under 92 FM. So how is college radio surviving today? Peter Cretton, general manager of WXAV 88.3 FM, St. Xavier University in Chicago, examines the current health of college radio. 